0: Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. Time flies when you're learning super cool stuff. I'm Nate.
1: And I'm Callie. If you're dropping in for the first time, welcome to Curiosity, where we aim to blow your mind by helping you to grow your mind. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back.
0: Today, you'll learn about how researchers have been able to grow embryos that have three genetic parents, how European moles can shrink a tenth of their size during winter, and whether or not being kind... To Diagnosed Narcissists Makes Any Changes in Their Behavior.
1: Without further ado, let's satisfy some curiosity.
0: Callie, did you know that making children with three parents is not only possible, but it's actually already been done? And the results were pretty surprising.
1: Yeah, I'd be a little bit surprised too if it took three people to make a baby. I'm just saying that's not something you can normally do. Do we need to have like a conversation about the birds and the bees or?
0: I, I think I get how it normally works. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not the issue here. Because of, you know, questions like that, these experiments are really controversial and they're actually illegal in a lot of countries around the world. But researchers have recently shown that not only is it possible, but children with genetic material from three parents seem to actually develop supremely similarly to children who have the traditional two parents.
1: Okay, I am absolutely hooked. You have to tell me how they did this.
0: All right, so this first happened in 2016 with a technique called mitochondrial replacement therapy, or MRT. Scientists took an egg from one woman and separated out the mitochondria, which is part of the cellular structure, from the DNA. And then they put this altered DNA into another egg from a female donor, So now it's taking DNA from one egg and putting it in another. So it now contains genetic material from two women. And that altered egg is then fertilized by the father. And there you go. You have a child born from three parents. The father, the mother with the majority of her DNA, and the donor woman with the egg and her mitochondria. One child, genetic material from three parents.
1: Okay, so what was the purpose of pulling the mitochondria out at all? Why, why not just use a donor egg? That, that happens all the time.
0: Right. So, well, the first time this happened, the woman who was pursuing the treatment had a neurological disorder that came from a mutation in her DNA. And unfortunately, in her situation, having kids meant that she would pass that disorder on and the kids could only live for a few years. And after she unfortunately lost two children— she was looking for a solution to this. And this process of altering the DNA of her future children offered her that solution.
1: Okay, I see two sides to this. Uh, Because I'm really glad that she was able to have a child and not pass her disease on. That's a breakthrough. But that's when you're using this technology for good moral reasons. But what happens if you use this for... I mean, I'm going to come right out here and say it. This sounds like eugenics.
0: Uh, Yeah, you're... You're right. That's absolutely one of the big concerns. Most doctors and researchers not only consider this procedure unsafe, they also consider it to be immoral. Being able to swap DNA is just a short leap from creating so-called designer babies, which absolutely is a term that reeks of eugenics. And eugenics, if you're not familiar, is a sort of planned breeding or selective breeding that's been used historically to get rid of traits that were deemed undesirable. And that was almost always driven by racism, sexism, or ableism.
1: Okay, so a new strategy for an old concept. Here's what's really confusing me. You said that this happened successfully in 2016. So why are we talking about it now with all of these ethical implications? I'm kind of surprised that researchers are even still pursuing it.
0: Well, there are some researchers that just finished a study looking at embryos that underwent the same three-parent procedure to see how they develop compared to standard two-parent embryos, and specifically, they looked at blastocysts.
1: Okay, (laughs) that doesn't sound like something having to do with the human body. What is a blastocyst?
0: So that's the stage of an embryo when it's about five days after being fertilized. It's when the embryo starts rapidly dividing its cells in order to grow into a functioning baby. When they looked at the embryos from MRT, the researchers noticed that the embryo was developing in almost the exact same way as a regular embryo. And it wasn't just the one that they looked at. They actually had dozens of them.
1: Okay, so seemingly you're saying that we didn't mess anything up too badly when we started swapping out parts of the DNA and adding a third parent?
0: Yeah, so far that's right. It looks like the MRT... Whether or not it's a good idea might actually be a viable way to create human life with the genetic material from three different parents.
1: Okay, so we can do it, technically, but will we? I mean, there's so much to unpack here, but is this going to become commonplace soon for people with problems with childbirth? Is this going to be something that we're seeing in the future?
0: Uh... Not anytime soon. So, the researchers only looked at these MRT embryos at the blastocyst stage. Like I said, that's about five days into fertilization. There is a lot more of the gestation process and the human life process to look at when it comes to deciding if MRT is safe and viable.
1: Not to mention if it's moral or ethical.
0: Absolutely, which is maybe even the bigger question. And when it comes to those questions, The answers need to come from both within and outside of the lab. Either way, even though it is possible, we have a long way to go when it comes to seeing MRT being used regularly, if it ever happens at all.
1: Something a lot of people actually know about me is that I am not a fan of winter. My electric bill is always way too high because I swear I'm cold-blooded and I cannot stay warm enough. But you know who doesn't have a problem conserving energy? The European mole, who a recent study has revealed can shrink itself, I know, by nearly eleven percent to conserve energy in crazy winter months.
0: Just, just a beautiful segue from it was one a little clunky, I know thing to another. All right, European mole shrinks eleven percent. How did they discover this? Are there scientists running around with calipers, like just chasing the moles, like
1: come back here? How big are you? Do you think you're kidding? A little. <laughs> okay. Well, the shrinking wolf phenomenon was actually discovered back in 1949 by a Polish scientist named Dr. August Danell, who noticed that shrew's skull sizes varied drastically from time to time. We're talking, you know, an actual noticeable difference in the size of them. After Denell's phenomenon, other scientists began to notice it in a couple of other species and animals as well, including most recently the European mole.
0: All right. I got to say the idea of animals just shrinking when it benefits them is a little bit strange. But if there are these people, if there Mm -hmm. are these scientists, these caliper-wielding, skull-measuring scientists out there, and that's something that they're doing, like, I feel like in that situation, seasonal shrinking might actually be pretty obvious. Like, you would notice this if you're regularly measuring these moles. So, Do
1: I need to make a joke about it being obvious that there's shrinkage in the cold?
0: It's a family podcast, (laughs) cat. But but my question is, like, how did they just discover this in the European mole if— Like I'm saying, like, you'd think they would notice this if they're the type of person— regularly measuring these animals.
1: Sure. So for a long time, it was believed that shrinking was uh, seasonally related uh, due to lack of food options during colder winter months. But the thing is, is most animals who do this weird shrinking trick are energetic and don't hibernate. It wasn't until a recent experiment became specifically focused on the phenomenon by supplying European moles with a consistent food source that they realized that these animals were still shrinking.
0: Okay. So they did know that they shrank. They just assumed the reason was food, and only recently thought to test that. All right, so does shrinking allow these animals to conserve more energy?
1: That is exactly what it does, but there's a little bit of a catch. So for these shrews, it wasn't just the bodies that shrunk. The skulls shrunk by nearly 20% during these months. Now, most of the creatures affected skulls never actually grow back to a normal size. That's kind of a big deal because even though it conserves the energy, it left permanent cognitive damage to the creatures.
0: Oof. I don't feel like moles have a lot of spare cognitive ability.
1: So this was shrews.
0: Well, I don't feel like shrews have a ton of spare cognitive ability either. Um, I got to say, I'm not sure that I think that's worth it. I suppose if if your only other option is you die because you can't conserve enough energy, then yeah, but that's quite a trade-off. Permanent cognitive damage for a little bit of more energy.
1: Yes, but there is a little bit of hope. See, many evolve to actually expand the skulls when it warms up again as well. This phenomenon opened the doors for even more exciting research, like how skeletons grow and how tissues can still alter themselves even after a creature is fully grown.
0: All right, so skeletons and tissues growing and altering after a creature is fully grown, this sounds like maybe it can be applied to more than the tiny ground rodents. Is this something that can apply to human physiology
1: somehow? Yes, exactly. And even though we don't always need it to apply to, you know, humans, there is some benefits here. Researchers are hoping that this will open the door to developing new medical treatments for conditions that affect the growth of human bones and organs, specifically mostly the brain and the spine.
0: All right, so back to the little voles, moles, shrews, whatever these tiny little mammals we're talking about. If Mm -hmm. this affects, like, a lot of different mammals, including the shrews, why are they looking into specifically european moles
1: that is a fantastic question. Other than being one of the most recent discoveries of this phenomenon, it's because their life cycle is actually longer than the shrews. So a shrew lives for about a year on average, which makes it a horrible example for trying to study this when you know we're talking about seasonal changes. The European mole lives three times that long for about three years on average, which gives us a much bigger window of you know chance to study the creature.
0: All right, so moles live longer, that's good. But again, Mm -hmm. why the European mole versus, say, a nice American mole, the Atlanta-Georgia mole?
1: (laughs) The Atlanta-Georgia mole. Assuming
0: there's—I don't know if there's such a thing. Throwing that out there, but—
1: Now I'm going to look it up.
0: Why the European mole?
1: Okay, glad you asked. Because the experiment was actually a compare and contrast. Researchers borrowed European mole skulls from across two years from university. They also borrowed skulls of Spanish moles. Now, these moles live in wildly different climates, obviously. You know, one's very warm, one's very cold. Their hypothesis, that the Spanish mole would shrink during the summer and the European mole would shrink during the winter.
0: Well, first off, European mole skulls is a great band name.
1: Dibs on the band. We've had
0: several good ideas for that. let throw that on the list.
1: <laughs> we have a lot of bands at this point.
0: <sighs> we really should learn to play instruments. Um, yeah. Okay. So, what was what was the verdict with these moles? Did the Spanish moles and the European moles shrink as expected?
1: See, that's the fascinating part. Remember how I said that this doesn't happen to a lot of creatures? So the European moles, as expected, shrunk by 11%, but then regrew by 4% in the spring. This actually repeated the following winter as well. So again, good thing they were studying moles, not shrews, because they had a second winter to look at. The Spanish mole, though, there were no significant changes, not even during a scarcity of food resources.
0: Does that mean that this is about evolutionary necessity, like it's something that has to be part of them genetically versus just a lack of food. It's not them starving and shrinking.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And now the researchers want to observe the phenomenon in living creatures to figure out how this evolutionary, basically a hack, occurred. As I said earlier, future research could even find a way to harness that energy saving into experiments for humans to figure out a way to save energy too.
0: All right, well, that's my plan for the winter. If it starts getting too cold, I'm just going to shrink down to five foot four
1: (laughs) (laughs) we'll see what it does to your cognitive abilities
0: (laughs) i don't know about you but i think most people can say that they've come across a narcissist once or twice in their lives It's definitely an interesting topic, and recent research suggests that there might be a better way to manage interactions with narcissists than previously known.
1: Okay, you're right. That's actually really fascinating. Uh, How do researchers say we should be dealing with narcissists?
0: Basically, it comes down to compassion, showing kindness to yourself and to others.
1: Doesn't that seem a bit counterproductive? Don't narcissists already love themselves?
0: Yes, but there's a difference between being compassionate to yourself and loving yourself. Let me explain. The study defines narcissism as having two unique styles of behavior. One is grandiose narcissism, which is when somebody is arrogant and acts superior to others, maybe even exploiting them. And to make this easy, we'll call our grandiose narcissist, Karen. (laughs) <laughs> but there's another kind. There's vulnerable narcissism, which is when people are really sensitive to others judging them because they lack self-esteem and showcase neurotic tendencies. So we're going to call them Ricky.
1: Okay, I get it. So being self-centered isn't always being mean, and it doesn't always involve loving yourself. So sometimes it's like being a Ricky when you're hyper fixated on how others perceive you. Exactly.
0: Exactly. And the researchers wanted to see if either of these traits could be eliminated by making subjects be compassionate not only to themselves, but to others.
1: Cool. Okay. So, um, how would you go about even getting narcissists to be kind to others?
0: Well, the researchers gathered 230 Western European subjects, most of whom were female students. Each was coached to think a specific way for a short amount of time. First, they were told to be self compassionate, where they had to think about a difficult or painful situation in their lives. Then they wrote about this situation while being told to focus on mindful and kind language.
1: Okay, mindful and kind language. I am familiar with this concept when it comes to therapy, but I'd love to learn more about it.
0: Yeah, this is the kind of language somebody should be using when they're happy with themselves. So, for example, if I look in the mirror when I'm happy and say, Ah, you're the coolest, Nate well, I should keep that same energy alive even when I'm sad or angry, too.
1: Okay, but that's so much easier said than done. So (laughs) what did they find?
0: Well, this is where the study gets a little complex because the researchers made four hypotheses for the study, and each was incorrect to some extent. Hypothesis number one, they guessed that self-compassion scores would go up for anybody who had high scores as a Karen in grandiose narcissism, and were exposed to the self-compassion exercise. And surprisingly, this wasn't the case.
1: Wait, really? Okay, so how so?
0: There was no change in their self-compassion, meaning there was no link found between being nice to yourself and being a Karen. Hypothesis number two guessed that subjects with grandiose narcissism would have trouble showing compassion for others, especially after exposure to self-compassion. And this one was only partially true.
1: (sighs) How?
0: (laughs) Well, first, I want to point out that the other end of the spectrum of compassion, which is what the researchers call other compassion or OC, it's the same rule of thumb, except you treat others with mindfulness and kindness when you're upset. And for the study, you wrote about someone else's painful situation. Whichever assessment was being tested, the subject had to write around 200 words.
1: And you'd think that would be a difficult task for a narcissist, right?
0: Yeah, and even then, it was only for those who scored high in what the researchers called the exploitative entitled subcomponent to grandiose narcissism. This is the subgroup of people who are actually more likely to exploit somebody for their personal gain. For everybody else, other compassion actually increased.
1: Okay, that's not what I expected. So you're telling me that only the worst kind of narcissists lack empathy for other people?
0: According to this study, at least, the other two hypotheses were related to the vulnerable narcissists, or Rickies as we're calling them. Researchers believed that self-compassion would improve after being exposed to self-compassion. This ended up being correct, just not as overwhelmingly as they thought.
1: Okay, and what's the final hypothesis?
0: The final hypothesis was that vulnerable narcissists exposed to self-compassion and other compassion wouldn't be more compassionate to others.
1: Let me guess. They were actually more compassionate.
0: Mm, Nope. The hypothesis was proven true for anybody considered a Ricky or a high-functioning vulnerable narcissist. It was only false for anybody showing low levels of vulnerable narcissism.
1: Okay, well, let me just wipe that egg off my face real quick. (laughs) Uh, So let me see if I've got this right. Karens are capable of being more empathetic to other people unless they're exploitative jerks. Rickies are not capable of being more empathetic, though. What does all of this mean?
0: It means that the people we perceive as narcissists, a.k.a. the grandiose narcissists, are actually capable of meaningful change when surrounded by compassionate people and behavior. This is a good thing because grandiose narcissistic traits are thought to be devastating to your relationships, to yourself, and for those around you. Unfortunately, so are vulnerable narcissistic traits, and the team seems to have shown that compassion won't heal somebody's lack of self-esteem.
1: So basically, if we're kind to Karens, they are capable of change. I mean, it might be a tough task out in the wild, but it's definitely an idea worth holding on to.
0: Exactly. Let's recap what we learned today to wrap up. A new study shows that it is not only possible to create a child with three parents, but their embryos develop much like regular embryos do. While it gives hope for those afraid of passing down a genetic condition, it also raises a lot of sticky moral
1: questions. If you're in Europe and the moles look a lot smaller during the winter, that's not your mind playing tricks on you. Scientists have discovered that certain species of mole are able to shrink their body mass by up to 11% to conserve energy during the winter. Future experiments could even unlock why this occurs evolutionarily, and maybe a way for humans to conserve energy in a similar way.
0: New research shows that the easiest way to fight narcissism is with a little good old-fashioned kindness. Most grandiose narcissists were found to show more empathy for other people when introduced to compassionate language. Unfortunately, vulnerable narcissists might need to find help another way, since the study found no difference whatsoever to the addition of compassion for them. Curiosity Daily is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Discovery.
1: You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we would love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.